0: Hi there, you're listening to the Sim Investing podcast where we discuss everything finance or business related. Sim stands for Simplified Integrity Meeting Prudence. Find us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Sim Investing. Before we begin, we'd like to put out a disclaimer that information and content discussed does not constitute financial advice and serves for educational or entertainment purposes only.
1: Hey everyone, Uh, today we have a very special guest on the pod. His name is CK and he's a real estate consultant and also a wealth mentor. So CK, thank you so much for your time uh, coming in this Saturday morning. We would like to understand like, um, basically, how do you get to where you are today and your prior experiences?
2: Um. Okay, so basically I'm a real estate consultant and that uh, I've been doing this for the last eight years, right? So in terms of how did I get to where I am today? Um, that's a very broad question. So I think maybe in a more simple um summary, I think the key important thing is to really believe that this is what I want to do, right? It's a belief that keeps me going because there's a lot of difficult times. There's a lot of uncertainty involved with my career. And ultimately is uh, with my parents as well. I think very typical um, Asian parents doesn't believe that sales is the way to go, right? They think that a more stable job would be better. So for me, it's really that belief that whatever I'm doing is what I want to do and that can be going.
1: So I like to ask, like, uh, real estate is a career choice, like, uh, how do you stumble upon real estate, and then maybe why why did you choose to venture into it? Was it something like maybe a friend brought you to it, or you just uh, suddenly just thought of the idea about joining real estate? Mm,
2: it didn't cross my mind initially, right? So what happened was that I used to be a regular with the navy, and but towards the end of my contract, right? So clearly I need to decide whether do I continue or not, and for me, I was very clear that. I wanted to venture out, but I wasn't sure what was the next step forward until I met a friend, right? Um, who suggested uh, real estate. And back then, um, I was thinking, okay, that's something I never thought of. So I went to find, uh, I went to find out more. And then, as I went to find out more, I started to realize that okay, sooner or later, one day I need to buy my own property as well, right? So why not jump into it, learn whatever I need to, from the point of view of like. More of advising myself as an investor first, and if that works out well, I think I can advise others as well. Yeah.
1: So during your earlier earlier years when you first started, because right? I, I know uh, from what I see from what my friends are doing, initially I think the initial hurdle is the hardest part to overcome, right? Like you know you have to go like door knocking, uh, trying to build up your network and stuff like that. Was it extra, was it very, very very difficult for you as well? Like, um, what are some of the ways like? you help to build up your contacts and help uh, perhaps like uh, experience wealthy people trust you with uh their, their properties to help you for you to transact?
2: Mm, I think the most difficult part in the beginning actually was more of that there's no basic pay, right? So you have no certainty of your income. There's no visibility of when the money ah. is coming in and so on in the beginning, right? So that, you know, there's a lot of fear involved. Right, And then when it comes to like, just now you mentioned door knocking and telemarketing, all that, right? I've I done them all. And it definitely felt very competitive because like there's so many people doing the same thing, right? And there's no way that you can stand out as a newbie in a sense because there are obviously more experienced agents. There are obviously more um those top achievers out there who are already in the market. So for me as a new agent, I think the only thing that shone through was really more of that sincerity. When you talk to people, people can feel whether are you sincere in serving them or are you there just to make a transaction? So that eventually became the basis of my business whereby in every client that I meet, right, they need to feel that I truly care for them and whatever I plan for them is for their own good. Right? So when I put my interests aside and put their interests first, then that helped me to build up my career.
1: Oh, sincerity, right? So um, mm. I mean... It's, there's a lot of money involved. They they will need to feel like your, your trust will be to be able to like, you know, just hand it to you. But what are some of the other traits you feel that um every successful or aspiring uh, real estate consultants should like uh, embody to be able to uh, perhaps get to where you are today or may, maybe even like surpass you one day?
2: <laughs> I think the number one trait would probably be, I would say transparency. I think transparency is super important because in in this line, sometimes lines can be very blurred, right? And there are people who even manipulate, you know, clients, so to speak. And I think that is a very dangerous thing to do. Some people do it really for the commission, right? They are, okay? So I think in that sense, for me, I always tell my guys that as long as you're transparent to the client, right? There's no need to try and smoke your clients. If you don't know, it's okay to say you don't know, right? Don't pretend that you know. And I think that's the transparency that helps a lot to bridge the trust gap right? So as long as you always believe that, okay, whatever I'm sharing with you is for your own good and I'm transparent with you, right? Whatever data, whatever analysis, i tell you where I get it from, right? What is this about and everything and the client understand where it's coming from, the trust will be there. Yeah.
1: So uh, do you see that, you know, because from what, what I know nowadays, like social media, I see a lot of like younger peeps joining the industry. Uh, some of them, maybe even still university students. Do you, do you, what do you feel about that? Do you feel like um uh, they embody what uh you think every successful realtor should have, or they, do you get the vibes that they're here just to uh, transact, uh just to you know, get that first pile of money and stuff like that? Do, do you feel that, or do you think overall more young people joining the industry at such a quick rate, right, actually helps to build up the industry further?
2: Um, This is a very good question because I think from a day to day, even in my job, right, we, we do see a lot of young people joining. Um, there are pros and cons, of of course. So let's talk about the pros first, right? So the pros is that with more young people, it pushes the older generation agents to step their game up, right? In terms of social media branding, because nowadays a lot of youngsters they are great with TikTok, they're great with Instagram, right? They are very media savvy, so to speak. So that pushes the older generation of agents, myself included, right? To be much more savvy with all these um, videos and so on, right? Social media stuff. Then at the same time, they bring in a form of energy that you know we need to leverage on because they're young, they're hungry, and I think that pushes us a lot. So that's that's a lot of pros on that. But the cons of it is that in the first place, most of these youngsters they come in um thinking that, okay, I want to make big money, I want to look like a baller, I want to drive fast cars and so on, right, at a very young age. So they want to look good, right? It's a it's a it's a I would say instant gratification generation so if a lot of youngsters uh younger generation millennials come in with that kind of mindset i mean yes they could do well they could still do well but i'm not so sure whether you know are they going to be able to offer real value to the clients or are they thinking more for their own you know pockets instead
0: yeah okay ck can you take take us back uh to your journey right like when which year did it start and like how did you uh, get started into the industry
2: um, so basically I got started in, uh, 2015, by 2015, uh, I remember how young were you then, like... by the way, sorry, how young how were young you was in I? 2015? Yeah. Oh, I was actually about almost 26. Okay. Yeah. 26. So considered young as well.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah. But at least I spent like five over years in the Navy as a regular before mm. I actually jumped over to the uh,
0: VSD industry. Okay. So um twenty fifteen, you come into uh, at twenty-six. So how, how I guess how did you start? How did you uh get starting, get leads? Did someone mentor you? Like what was that process and journey like?
2: Mm, matter of fact, back then I think there were not as much emphasis on social media yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Although a lot of people were doing Facebook marketing and so on, but personal branding was still relatively not, I would say, as important as today. So back then, it was really a lot of hard work in terms of door knocking, telemarketing, right? There'll be lists of phone numbers that um we get from the company database, right? So, and then we call them one by one and we try to see whether they want to sell, they want to buy. So there were a lot of um, trial and errors involved as well. Hmm. And because the prospecting method last time was not so much on personal branding, so it was more difficult to gain the trust of the client as well. Right, because they do not know who is behind that call, who is behind you know the door knocking the door, right? So even when they talk to us, they will feel skeptical and they're they're just thinking, like, is this agent out to make my money? Or yep. is this agent truly able to help me? So I think as a beginner back then, even today there are still agents who, who go through the same thing, but it's just that now there's an added um advantage of having social media to let people know who you are and what you do. Right. But back then we didn't have the advantage. So I think that was a more tougher period to truly stand out.
0: Okay. So what do you do to go and get your first client?
2: Um, thankfully, back then, I had some referrals and I still believe that should be the case for a lot of new agents because your immediate first income, right? It's, it's not easy to come from someone who you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Strangers don't give you business so easily right from the beginning. It yeah. do happen, but I would say that it's less certain. What is more certain, however, is that today you have relatives and friends, right? Spread the word out that you're a real estate agent and people will come to you. So for me, when I first started out, I had referrals coming in that helped to keep me afloat for the first few months. Mm-hmm. And even my current new agents, right? Some of them are already making more than six figures in their first year because of the referrals. And I think that is only a result of because they put themselves out there and they add value to their friends and relatives and more referrals are coming in. So that helps them to build their first base of clients without having to spend a single cent on marketing.
0: Okay, so twenty fifteen, you got your first few referrals. Do you remember who was it from and like what what did you sell the person? Uh, obviously, don't disclose the name, but uh, was it a condo? Was it HTV? <laughs> yeah.
2: My very first deal I remember was a rental, right? Okay. It was from my ex girlfriend's father. Okay. Yeah. So so he had <laughs> a property to rent out. He asked me to help him
0: to rent. So That was the very first one. Okay. So then after. The first one you got some momentum, some experience and stuff right how How did you progress to like you, you can sell one client right you can validate that how do you scale to five ten clients after that
2: Um I think it's a very good question because like it depends on whether the real estate agent has marketing dollars set aside or not mm-hmm. right so back then for me, I didn't have a lot of savings, so I spent like more than a year doing all the traditional stuff right mm-hmm. like the door knocking, telemarketing books shows more than a year on that because I didn't have enough marketing dollars. But once I started to have more marketing dollars, then I could set aside funds for Facebook marketing, right? Also on Google, AdWords, they call it pay-per-click, right? So all those were ways how I actually get a bigger clientele base, right? So for any new agent, I think if you have marketing dollars set aside, then that is where you have a head start, and advantage whereby you can focus more on digital marketing to prospect and get clients. But for those who don't have, then to me is either you go the traditional way, or you try to get as many I would say warm um leads and referrals from your own personal network.
0: Yeah, so that's why I kind of ask right, whereas like the first client, your ex girlfriend's father, you sold him the property, so warm leads exhaust already, right? How how was the second? Uh, so made some commission, made some money on that. Then did you immediately pump that into paid advertising and stuff? Like how did that second um sale come about?
2: I think it's a very good question because back then I, I faced a lot of obstacles when it comes to using the money that I made. Mm-hmm. Right, just to share with you, I think the first 100k that I made, right, more than 90 over k, I passed it to my mother, not out of choice. <laughs> oh, so, okay. so it was a difficult period, yeah, because you know, like with Asian mothers, um, they were just saying, pass it to me, I'll keep it for you. she really did of course credit to her she didn't misuse my money (laughs) but i think (laughs) the difficult thing is that because they they had no confidence in the vst industry they just felt like it's uncertain and your income is not fixed and so on so she took 90 percent of it away put it aside right so i'm left with like 10k on and obviously that's not enough if you think about expenses plus marketing right Mm -hmm. It, it could barely last me you know not even five months so so that was a difficult period whereby afterwards, I still need to go back to my mother and say, hey, I need some money for my expenses and marketing, right? Because for real estate, unknown to many, I think a lot of times commission can come more than half a year later. Mm-hmm. And that is like, you know, a long period of time that we have no income, no money. And therefore, I think I think that is a very big lesson that I learned, right? Which is that as I grew in the industry, I really told myself that, okay, I need to get back control of my finances, Yep. And it's a business. I think not just in VST, but in any self-employed business, for business owners to understand this, is that you need to grow money with money. Yes, right. You don't grow grow money out of thin air, right? With any investment, it's the same. So, so that is where I learned how to overcome this issue, and I had to negotiate with my mother, right, to yep. to willing for her to relinquish that control over my finances. And slowly, slowly, as I proved to her that I can manage it well, I think with a lot of people out there, you might feel the same. Like, you know, you need a mother, your parents to relinquish that control bit by bit. We have to prove it to them that we can manage our finances well, that we know what we're doing, and you generate more results. So when that started to happen, then I managed to get back full
0: control of my finances. Okay. And this 100K was like pre tax income, right? You haven't even paid tax on the 100, or it's already after tax? Uh, Yeah, this is pre tax. Okay. So.
2: Yeah, minus the way the tax, actually, I'm left with like maybe 70% of okay. the 100k.
0: Understood. So uh, there's a quote that says like, scared money don't make money, right? So your, your, your parents wanted to like take control of that, but put where? Like savings account, like it's going to give you 2-3%. So what was she doing? Just like holding it uh, in cash.
2: Um, the funny thing is that my mother said, uh, I would take some to invest. Don't ask me where, but trust <laughs> that it is um, stable. That's all I got. <laughs> okay, okay. Right. Yeah. But I think the main part of it was was stuck in the bank la, Which obviously to me, I know that that wasn't the most um, profitable way to do it. Okay. But with parents, they have their own set of thinking,
0: right? Got it. It's the best. Uh, just trust me, bro. <laughs> okay. So how how does <laughs> yeah. that uh like uh snowball into that um two three four five clients for you to have that momentum to get more even more cash flow? So you got that seventy k hundred k. How did that?
2: I think the key thing for me was really about like trying to focus on the next deal, mm. right? I think I think one mistake that I made was looking backwards because like for the first time in your life, right? Like I think for a lot of people at the age of 26, you wouldn't have imagined to make that first 100K within, I think back then my first 100K was just right on the dot of me being in the industry for one year, mm. right? So, and back then it was quite a big thing because last time I think the commissions um were not that high because the transaction volume was very low. Back in 2015, it was a very slow market. So for anyone to make 100K back then, especially as a newbie, it was very obvious that, wow, this is a very tremendously good result, a very big achievement. And the mistake that I made was looking back because I was worried that would I be able to hit another 100K soon, right? because I'm afraid that I would be a one-hit wonder. Okay, so that was why I fell into that trap. And and it took me more than a year to get out of that because like that there's that constant fear of, okay, what if someone else do better than me? And guess what? This is the way how law of attraction works is that when you're worried about something, that that things happens, right? So I'm worried about people catching up with me. Indeed, more and more people caught up with me. They, they were the ones who used their money to make money work for them, yep. right? And I didn't. And I saw how people, you know, like, improved so much tremendously in a short time while I didn't. I was still doing the traditional stuff, right? The road shows, the talent marketing and so on. So, so that was when I really realized that there's no point looking back, right? It's the only way is forward. And this is when I actually changed my agency, right? I jumped from one agency to another. And so from there, then I found a new environment and I told myself this is a new beginning, right? This is a restart. And there's no looking back. And then from there, that is where, you know, it got better for me because I realized that a lot of things that focus um, I would say it's, it's all in the mind, right? It's like what your mind focused on will determine the results. And once I learned that, then that's where I got out of it and started to build on there to,
0: you know, make more money from them. Okay. So would you say your first uh, 100K in commissions, right? They are all warm referrals. Is that correct? Like, oh, C- everyone knows CK is an agent now, Mostly. for example.
2: Mostly, um, okay. there were some. I mean, that uh, strangers that I serve as well, um, uh, like from both shows. Like you know, when when um, there are new launches and so on, and we go out and you know we talk to clients and we bring them into the show flat. There were quite a few, mm. maybe about three or four, right? But then the rest of it is uh from my
0: one market. Okay, can so 2015 first year. Uh, when did you realize that you needed to switch things up and move in an agency?
2: I think it was uh, end of 2017, right? Because partly also um, with the company culture, I think that wasn't what I felt for. And at the same time with my mentor last time, I didn't feel like I was learning enough, right? So my mentor was, uh, she's nice though. She's very, very nice, right? It took me very long to decide to change agency because she was so nice. But nice is one thing, right? Is that when, when your mentor is someone who has been in the industry for 17, 18 years and still sticks to the old ways of doing things, then I realized that for, you know, with like digital marketing, with social media and so on, um, my mentor back then couldn't value at me in that manner. Mm. And that was when I decided that, okay, I need to change. I need to, you know, join someone who is more savvy with that. Yep. Someone who can guide me along in terms of like digital branding and so on. Yeah, so so that was where I decided to change and I never look back.
0: Okay. Uh so do you can you disclose who you jumped to or cannot? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um basically I, I
2: joined um from next, right, under Marcus law. Okay. okay. so I'm directly under Marcus now. Uh so that is where I mean for you guys if you know he is um pretty popular on TikTok as well. Yeah. So I think in terms of joining him was quite a good addition. Right, that, that showed me how um, digital branding can push you up to the next level. Okay.
0: So like the, the guy had to convince you to join, right? Or maybe it's like willingly have to join as well. So what was the sales pitch of like, hey, uh, CK, come <laughs> come my brokerage or whatever. Like what was the pitch <laughs> like for you? I think, I think to
2: be fair, different leaders, different um, mentors will have different pitch, right? I think for me, um, what I focused more on was, whether this person a right fit, And whether it is person, someone that I would be willing to work along with. Yeah. So a lot of people, when they join the industry, they keep thinking that, okay, like, like probably they want training. Yes. They want structure. They want support. Okay. All this actually is, is of course, it's important. But a lot of people forget that real estate ultimately is a people business. And the most important thing that I believe in is that between you, yourself, and the mentor, the working relationship must be there right? You must feel like, okay, this person that I'm willing to run along with, that I'm willing to work along and listen to this person on, um, no need to be day, day-to-day, but on a regular basis, at least, you know, touch base once a week, that kind of thing. And that, you know, as long as you can get along fine and the team culture is great, you know, so that is where you will definitely get more value other than just focusing on training. Because anyone can give you training, but not everyone can give you real, you know, mentor relationship, right? I think, I think that is more important for me.
0: Okay, so 2017 jump ship. Um, I'm just thinking uh, like the advertising channels would be peer advertising. You do a lot of organic stuff and then probably you collect start collecting email lists or customer uh, telegram group chat or whatever, right? So can you tell us how did you expand your lead flow and get more consistent inbound uh, basically?
2: Um. I think I went through a very different um, journey compared to a lot of estate agents, mm. right? So. Just to let you guys know, I think majority of the real estate agents don't focus so much on personal branding. I think only maybe the top 5%, only top 5% focus on personal branding. So from the main bulk, right, they went through more on digital marketing, which I also did. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it came from product marketing, which is basically promoting, most likely, most of the time is new launch, right? Why? Because for people who search actively online, usually they search for new launches rather than searching for resale. And for resale, probably they'll go straight to Property Guru and find, you know, houses to view. But for new launches, people will Google for it or people will look at Facebook ads and click into it. So I went through that period of focusing a lot on that, which did make me more money. But I realized that um it doesn't help me in the long run because it's always chasing after product, you know, one after another. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't like is this, all right, and the, the truth with this also is that a lot of real estate agents create websites and pretend to be developers. Okay, this is the truth that you guys uh, hear, hear from here because I I want this to be known that a lot of websites that you click doesn't belong to the developer, right? You Google for a new launch, 99.9% of the time you're clicking into an agent website. No matter which one you choose, high Chinese to an agent, okay? So, so that is where I didn't agree with the direction eventually. I felt like that isn't right, right? For me to pretend to be a developer staff, and then eventually, you know, the, the trust is not there and it's hard to, you know, follow up. It's hard to bring the client elsewhere because they will be thinking that, why is this so weird? You're representing the developer and you're bringing me to somewhere else that is another developer's development, for example. That doesn't make sense, right? So, so I moved away from that and then I started to focus more on personal branding. So it's only more in the past one year, all right? I've been in this industry for so long, but it's more in the past one year that I focus more on personal branding, giving more advice on my YouTube, Instagram, and more recently TikTok. Yeah, so, so that is why like right now it's kind of like a transition phase and I can see it building up slowly, but definitely more stable with more organic content. Yeah, so I think for a lot of new agents, probably you have to weigh between, you know, product marketing and personal branding. I think it's best to do both in the beginning slowly transit more towards personal branding because that will never die right your own brand is your own brand nobody can take that away from you
0: okay so would you say that majority of the uh marketing that you do now is purely content organic marketing like you even, you even pay for to get in front of the customer is that correct
2: uh, i would still pay i mean uh, paid ads is still uh, eventually the fastest way to get any clients right mm-hmm. But it's just that um, right now, just to let you guys know, I'm also working on my own um, real estate book. Right, I'm mm-hmm. writing a book at the moment, and then so at the same time, of course, I'll be doing, um, like real estate investment courses. Yeah, so there will be paid ads, you know, to promote all these courses and so on. Yeah. But ultimately, it comes from a place of offering people my genuine advice and through my years of experience, instead of hiding behind, you know, a product, right? Trying to sell you this is the latest condo and whatever. Yeah, that's not that's not the direction that I want to go into now.
0: Okay, understood. Would you say it's like the Ryan Sirhan playbook, right? But, uh, in Singapore context, would you say that?
2: It's something like that.
0: Yep. Okay, understood. So, like, I just, be honest, right, I found you on TikTok. <laughs> so, like, the discovery feature is there, okay. so you should probably do more of that. But, uh, in that situation, right, <laughs> uh, how, how do you think about planning content? Because real estate uh, content is very, I'll say broad, right? You can go, to a launch, you can talk about investment, how to invest, uh, deposit, education. There's so many other scenarios right to talk. So how do you plan about the content and how do you plan to distribute that from a media perspective? Mm, That's a very, very good question.
2: I think first and foremost is, I always come from the point of what is it that I can value add to the market today? What is it that people don't really know of and therefore whatever I share will become much more, I would say, um, valuable. Mm. Right. For example, like there's no point for me to talk about, let's say today, um, what are the step by step procedure to buy a HDB? I think the step by step procedure any agent can tell a client that, right? But like more recently, like just just for example, recently I did a video on um loan versus CPF, right? If you check out my TikTok channel, you will see that. The reason why I came up with that topic was because someone brought up that question in my TikTok, you know, like comments, and I think that is what I love is that with comments that's where I get to know what people know and what they don't know, right? Which for any real estate agent, that is the biggest tip out there is to learn from the people that you meet, right? Be it online or offline, right? Whatever questions that people tell you, those are actually, you know, content that you can use, all right, to generate like this, the topic that you want to talk about, right? Because I think people's concerns will always be concerns. If one man have this concern, it probably means that more than, you know, 10,000, 100,000 of people have the same concern, concerns. But I think we are investing in the same thing. So so that is where once you get that, you use that as topic, you talk about it, it will naturally gain traction. You will gain people's, um, I mean, in terms of their attention, and then your followers will start to increase.
0: Okay, I understood. Is there a specific, like, specialty type of property that you sell RCK? Like, I don't know, I know some people, like, they only sell rentals, they only sell condos, HDB. Or are you just agnostic, you just don't care? <laughs> Uh for me, of course, I do what is needed for
2: every client. It's just that my expertise is on identifying in terms of investment properties. For own stay as well, but I would always use, um, I would say a simple analogy to people is that buying a home, yes, is important, but you still need to let your money work hard for you at the same time, right? So my angle is always about helping people to look more long-term yep. rather than just short-term today. Okay, I'm just here to buy a house and that's it. And But if your money is not working hard for you, then you may enjoy the comfort now, but many years later, you don't see that money grow, and that is when you probably suffer a little bit more, right? Or you have to rely on other sources of investment to help you to grow that wealth, right? So so that is my angle. And because I work with a lot of developers, right, because over the years, I build up in terms of my um, position in a company. So I actually work directly with a lot of developers as... um the so-called IC role, right? As in charge of projects. So from there, I start to be very well-versed in terms of identifying, you know, new launches in terms of their pros and cons, right? The entry price and the exit strategy. So that is what I mainly specialize in.
0: Okay, understood. So when you're under, sorry, when you're working in Marcus, this company and stuff like that, right? Um, How does uh, the brokerage of the company support you as an agent? Uh,
2: Of course, there's a lot of training provided. um, Tons of trainings right, I think I think that is the best thing about now is that with technology, with Zoom, right, because of COVID, somehow rather it became a bonus for us is that we could attend way more trainings than what than what we're used to, sometimes a bit too much, but we can never complain of too much too many trainings, right So that's one, and secondly is that of course, uh, with a company, with a team, I think branding is important because that gives you more market visibility and credibility as well. Because when people know that you come from a reputable agency or team, then that's where it's easier for people to trust you, yep. right? It's just like, you know, if someone tells you that, okay, I'm, I'm representing, you know, maybe for example, um, Apple, right? I'm selling an Apple product and so on. Okay, it's better than maybe an unknown brand from China and you never even heard of the brand before trying to sell you the same phone. You wouldn't feel that you would trust that person. But with Apple, you walk into an Apple store, you know that, okay, this is a legit person and everything, it's easy
0: to trust. Right. So I think with the agencies, this is the same thing. Okay. I understood. So imagine uh, Branson's a client, right? <laughs> imagine Branson's like twenty-eight, 29. They probably already, you know, they want to buy a property and stuff. So how do you go about step by step? Because you said you advise them on uh, what to buy and how to exit, right? The price and stuff. Right? So how, yeah, imagine Branson, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, CK, sorry. <laughs> go ahead, advise. Imagine Branson's <laughs> a client. <laughs> I mean, like, you know what I mean? So how does, how, how okay. would you advise? Yeah.
2: Okay, I think first and foremost, the very first thing I need to do is to do a thorough assessment in terms of his objectives, right? Short-term and long-term goals. Because I think with a lot of first-timer, the first immediate thinking is more on securing that very first home. Nothing wrong with that. But I think what I like to do is to always think two, three steps ahead. That, okay, this is your first home, right? So what can you do with that first home to upgrade to the next one and beyond. Could it be possible that you can, you know, from one property become two or three in the future? right? Yeah. So that is where we, we talk about long-term planning. And I like to do reverse engineering. That means you tell me, say, okay, maybe for example, you tell me that your long-term goal is to stay in the landed house. Great, all right? so now we know this landed house. All right? How long do you want to get there? Maybe 10 years? Okay, 10 years, for example, right? So I reverse engineer it and say, okay, 10 years later, a landed house Right, which area do you want? This is roughly the cost of it. Okay, let's say for example, you want to stay in Bukitima, a freehold, hole landed. 10 years later, I'll tell you, okay, maybe you need about 12 to 15 million to get there. Let's reverse engineer this, and then we can see what is the steps needed in between to make sure that you can get to there or near there in 10 years time. Right, that's one. Then another thing is to do a reality check. When I say reality check, means that we need to look into the finances. Right, that means today, how much money do you have? How much down payment do you have ready to set aside to invest in the property? Or are they ways, Some some um, first timers they actually get support from the parents as well, right? Like one of my secondary school um, friend, right, who bought a property for me, right, he got support from his parents and his girlfriend's parents to buy a condo, and today that condo easily have already profited about four hundred k on paper, right? So if he sells it, it's a sure gain. So that is where for first-timers, you know, I would assess as well, like, do you have financial support from parents or is there only so much you can use, right? So from there, I can actually help to map out what are the possibilities, right? So what can you do today? Versus like maybe three to five years down the road and 10 years and slightly beyond. I I won't go way too far because that would be like too unpredictable. But I think the first 10 years, it is quite visible for me to see what can be done.
0: Okay. Yeah, so that's how I would start. Okay, so imagine there's 5-600K in the bank. Uh, how do you flip that <laughs> into, like you said, the two to three properties um, over the next 10 years, for example? Uh, of course, there's a lot of different
2: mechanics involved, right? I think if I were to go into that, this show will never end. Okay. But but maybe to summarize and keep it simple for you guys, right, is that um, putting aside the fact that there are other forms of investments other than real estate, mm. Okay. I always believe that if you want to invest in stocks, even crypto or whatever, up to you. But there should always be money set aside for housing because housing will never die in Singapore. right? Matter of fact, because Singapore, our land is limited. So that is one of the unique advantage compared to maybe countries like Malaysia. They have too much land that you know it doesn't add value to the property price growth. Right? But in Singapore, it's not, it's not the case. So so, if let's say for example, if like what you mentioned, five hundred k in in mm-hmm. the bank, um, if, if you want to split it into two properties, it's still not okay. enough at this current moment, right? Because in today's times, I think property prices is getting too high. Five hundred k you can only buy right. one, right? So so, if that is the case, then to me, I want to maximize it in terms of the potential returns by going for the biggest size of the unit possible, right? I believe in size because in terms of the um, appreciation, right? Between, let's say, for example, today, if you buy a, maybe for example, for one point five million, you can buy a one bedroom in town today. One bedroom, yeah. right? But this very same one point five million, if you go somewhere else, you could buy at least a two plus study, you know. So, so that would be like probably about seven hundred plus square feet yeah. to eight hundred. But just the one bedroom is only like four five hundred square feet in town, right? So, so I would prefer the two plus study because, like, with seven hundred square feet if the PSF grow by maybe like 300 PSF, I will make 200 over 1,000. But for the one bit room to make the same 200 over 1,000, it needs to go up by 500 over PSF. So I look at it, which one is more likely? Is it easier for the 700 plus square feet to go up 300 or the 400 square feet to go up by 500? Which one is easier? So most of the time, I would tend to be a bit more conservative. I will go with the 2 plus study. Location may not be as prime, But with prime properties, of course, it is possible to go up 500. I'm not saying that it won't, it it can. But it's when and how soon, right? That is also another consideration. So, versus the, you know, between like a town area prime location versus somewhere more on the outside, I would usually tend to prefer to invest something more on the outside. Okay. Unless today money is really not an objection and that you can afford a big size unit in town, then to me, yes, for sure, right? Because I've seen people make millions of profits from buying a big unit in town yeah. because the rich have the money to pay, right? So so they are able to actually give you the profit that you need in, in prime areas. But for most of the Singaporeans out there, I would say affordability is not as um high. So which is why I always feel that investing in the mass market areas would be you know, yeah. a better way to go. Then once you make a profit from that, let's say you're 500K yeah. today, and your this mass market development makes you that two to 300K more, and now you have almost 800K already plus your own savings and whatnot, right? Then from there, you can split it into two properties from there, right? Maybe husband and wife, each person buy one each. Okay, so that could be, that could be the most uh, probable way of doing that. Okay, got it. Vincent?
1: So, uh, uh, you know, going back to my journey of mm-hmm. buying a house, right? Uh, the, the role playing, uh, I, I I'm broke and then I'm always seeing ads like, on youtube I'm like, I, I, I don't think i can say the the company <laughs> they keep saying that i can buy property <laughs> i can buy properties with like no money down so when i first hear that like is that really true because that's very attractive right like you can own a property um the cost like maybe more than a million dollar with no money down like how how, how does it work like is it even possible or is it just like a a group together thing or something collective investment. I, I'm not really sure. Okay. So like, how does it work? For,
2: for that, it's not for residential. That's for sure. All right. Because with residential, there are a lot of red tape around it. So actually that uh, method is more for industrial. Right. So the idea here is to, if I'm not wrong, is to actually join forces with the, you know, they have a community, so to speak, right, whereby you match with people who want the same thing. You form a company together with people that you don't know. Right, and then you use the company to actually generate funds like loans and so on Right, to actually invest into a property. Um, I would say that it is it is not wrong. Legally, it is allowed, right? But it's just that, of course, it's at your own risk lah, because you don't know that person, that person don't know you, right? So that's the risk that you have to take. So with that being said, I, I would say that that is a very smart way to do it. Of course, it does circumvent a lot of um issues, right? But I think that it's always that risk element that you have to be aware of. So what I always believe in is that um, I want to play safe, right? I don't want my income to be, you know, reliant on someone, especially someone that I don't know, right? So I'd rather rely on my own funds and everything. And I always believe that to make money, you you don't take shortcuts, right? Although some people can say, oh, this is a very smart idea and everything. But at the end of the day, smart ideas usually come with very high risk, right? And, and to me, is that really worth it when things go wrong? I, I don't think so. Right, but if today I'm using my own money, it may be painful that you need to fork out the down payment and everything, but it's still your money, right? And you're in 100% control of your own decision. You don't need to consult any shareholders or whatever, right? It's just you, yourself. So I think that for me as an investment, I, I like to have certainty and control in that sense.
1: Liquidity will be a very big issue, right? Like everybody, like a majority has agreed agree that, okay, we need to sell this property. Then some people who need money, like at the moment, like uh, they need that cash, to maybe pay for something else. They can't really get it, right? They can't really get it out from the property. Right? Everybody has to agree um, or something like
2: that. Kind of, la, because end of the day, it's a combined investment, right? So end of the day, of course, people won't borrow you their names mm. for nothing, right? There will be some form of profit sharing and so on. So with that being said, I think there's a lot of great areas that, you know, nobody would dictate like how to do it. Of course, they have community guidelines and rules and everything. Mm. But end of the day, I mean, it, there is still no 100% security, right? So so that's why I don't prefer to recommend yep. that to my clients.
1: I see, got it. So uh, another part of my uh, perhaps journey to buying a house, right? Because nowadays, all my friends are getting like, uh, about to get married, they all get their BTOs and stuff like that. So everyone's been telling me, you should get a BTO, and even my parents, because that could help you earn your first pot of... Uh, cash or something like that mm-hmm. because of the subsidies think, and um, maybe after like the, the yeah. lock up year is up, you can flip it. Is, uh, it, is it worth it? Like, I think this is going a by is
2: question because it really depends on individual, obviously for youngsters who have, you know, like very little CPF and savings, if let's say your affordability, maybe upfront is like less than 100K, ETO is your only option, right? So there's no other ways other than that. So, but however, I always believe that um for BTOs, yes, they, they will make you a first pot of gold. That is not wrong, but it's always at the expense of mm-hmm. time. Especially with today, uh, since COVID happened, right? A lot of BTOs were delayed. And that is where in terms of that, it has also resulted in an inflated resale market for HDB. Because a lot of uh, young couples, they forfeited their BTOs because they couldn't wait, right? Like, like nowadays, you need at least five years or more to get a house keys. So for a lot of people, they forfeited that. They went to HDB resulting in an inflated market. And therefore, a lot of people are buying HDB on a higher price now. So for me, I always feel that like, like end of the day, you need to weigh that, you know, if let's say you have the affordability to go for a private, you're holding private for a private, even if you're using it as a stepping stone and you want to flip and sell, the minimum you need to hold is only three years from the day you purchase it, right? You exercise the option, three years from there, you can sell already. But at the BTO, you need, you know, to wait for, let's say, four to five years for it to build. Another five years before you can sell, that's 10 years gone, right? Using the very same 10 years, if I buy private, I can at least flip two to three rounds. Yep. So definitely in terms of, uh, you know, return-wise, private will always be the more feasible one in terms of generating higher returns in the same amount of time. It's just that, of course, people will say that, yeah, of course, because private entry price is higher, right? But that is why I always say that it really depends on affordability. If you have the money too, then why not let the money work harder for you, right? Instead of, let's say today you buy a BTO and then it doesn't make the same amount of money for you in the 10 years. Some will argue and say, okay, I, I put the money in the BTO and the rest of the money in stocks and crypto and so on. By all means go ahead, but obviously we all know that the volatility mm. is very different to real estate, right? So that is another form of risk that you have to take which we have seen in the last few months, stocks and crypto weren't doing well. Now, picking up a bit, but it's a who knows what will happen tomorrow yep. thing. Yep.
1: So, uh, can I understand why there's a three years lockup to private properties? Is, is it like a, is there, is there a Okay, a, a so rule or...
2: technically you can sell immediately the next day, but it's just that there is this mechanism in place, which is called seller stamp duty. Okay, seller stamp duty. Uh, so it's a tax imposed oh. on you to prevent Singaporeans from selling too fast, too immediately. Because last time, I think in the days of 2011, 2012, people could still do that, right? But after that, the government slapped in um, seller stamp duty, if I'm not wrong, in 2013, right? So last time it used to be four years. Now they re- mm. uh, in 2017, they reduced it to three years from the day that you purchase. So the first year, you had to pay 12% tax if you sell. Second year, 8%, third year, 4%. So after the third year is over, then you can sell without incurring any additional
1: tax. Actually, uh, I, I know that uh, buying a property for, for your own residential needs, like maybe I will look at stuff like, um, how does the place make me feel? Like the, the staff nearby, is it near a school kind of stuff? But, uh for investment property, right? Maybe it's like it's like for example, my second property. Like what what do you think are some of the quick factors that maybe I should consider uh before like trying to dump a huge load of money into an investment property that uh that because of the three years lockup may provide some illiquidity as well. So are there any quick factors in your mind that you think that I should quickly like have a checklist um, and just tick, 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 tick. Of course it also depends on different consider.
2: people like like different buyers have different objectives, right? So the checklist will vary accordingly because their objectives and their outcome that they want is different. So, but however, on a general note, on a very, very general note, um, I always believe that investors should not buy investment properties. By saying that, I mean that, you know, a lot of investors, they like to look at, for example, prime locations and that some of them buy like shoebox units or smaller size unit because it's easier to rent out, which is not wrong, right? It's easy to rent out, yes, because most of the rental deals out there usually is uh, one bedroom and two bedrooms. But I, my personal belief is that I, I want to invest in an own state development. Whereas possible, right? Investors should buy own stay developments, like units that you would imagine someone buying to stay in. Why? It's because the organic demand is there. I always believe in these two words, organic demand, right? Which means that any time, good times, bad times, I want to sell, there'll be someone who want to buy. Right? Today, if you buy a one-bit, two-bit, yes, you can rent out. But, you know, in certain times, you may not see the demand because it is small and depend on location, right? Like, like you may not see that every single day you have people coming to view and, you know, there won't be a high demand for it. But today, let's say I put in a HDB context, right? It is always easier to sell a four-room, five-room flat than a three-room. Because three-room is only two-bedrooms. So you don't have that many people looking for that. But four-room flat, five-room flat, easy because at least three-bedrooms, that is what the majority wants. So I'm applying that very same concept onto condos, right? I want to sell a three-bedroom condo or at least a two-plus study or a very big, comfortable two-bedroom, you know, at least, right? Three-bed, four-bed will never die. Okay, that's my belief because the organic demand will always be there. Yeah, so so as an investor, be it whether for your own stay or investment, I always feel that own stay product will always be the best.
0: So in your experience, like what is the like average like annual yield for a local property, for example? And I also heard like, uh, a lot of people also recommend like, hey, go and buy a UK, right? Go and buy some, I don't know, not Hong Kong, uh, I can't think of it. Yeah, but go and buy foreign, then just go and buy multiple. Because if you go and buy uh, four properties in, in US, for example, you're only down like 400K, right? So the, the contract value of the home was also much lesser. So like, how do you um, recommend people to do that? Also, do you do it yourself? And I guess just give us perspective or opinion on, yeah.
2: Um, Actually, just to share, um, I'm actually looking at some overseas properties at the moment as well. Yeah. Um, But I think in terms of this, right, people just need to know that it's for the purpose of diversification. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I believe that Singapore real estate ultimately, it will definitely still grow. It will still give you a good decent, I would say, returns. As for how much in terms of you and everything, it really depends on how you buy the property, right? Are you taking a loan using CPF or are you paying in full, right? Because if you're paying in full, let's say you full cash pay off the property at one shot in cash, right? That is return of investment, right? ROI. But if you're using, um let's say, cash and, and partially CPF, partially loan, then we use return on equity, right? So the returns will be different. For rental, generally on a gross yield, a good yield in today's market is anything close to 3% and above is considered very good, right? The norm is 25 to 2.8% rental yield, which is not very, very high, but I think it is still, you know, like decent, okay? But anything above 3 is good. But I would also balance between um capital appreciation and rental yield, right? Because rental to me is slow money. Okay, today, if we are talking about generating wealth, appreciation will always jump faster than rental. That's for sure, right? Because rental, your month-to-month, you minus of your installment, your maintenance fees and everything, you're left with $300 a month, yeah. basically. Yeah. Like it's not going to grow you so much money in a short time. So for appreciation, to me, I would say that it depends. Let's say today, a typical situation, right? Most people, they use 75% um, loan and then 25% down payment of their cash and CPF. So, based on that, typically if you buy a good investment, right, your return of equity could be in the range of like 30 to 40% on average. Right? I have seen 50-60% in some cases, but I want to be conservative and say that 30 to 40% is very achievable in terms of appreciation-wise, right, your, for your return of equity. Okay, so when it comes to investing in overseas property, however, that is a very different ballgame, right? Because different countries have different rules and regulations. Like, for example, Australia, just for example, right? Because I'm studying Australia a bit recently. is that foreigners are not allowed to buy resale properties there. Oh, Okay, okay. you can only buy brand new. Yeah, so that's a different rule, right? And then I also look at New Zealand. And New Zealand is that, interestingly, they only allow Singaporeans and Australians and, of course, their locals to buy um, properties there without paying any extra tax. Okay, no foreigner tax, no whatever, right? But their bank loan interest is 5%. Okay, Singapore bank loan interest now is still 2% plus, right? So there are a lot of different factors that in need to weigh and you realize that it's a whole different ballgame. So for me, is don't invest into something you're not familiar with, right? If you guys know Warren Buffett, yeah. right? Does he invest in internet, anything internet related? Apple only. No, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So, so which is why, but he mentioned the reason why is because he don't understand what he's investing in. So therefore, he won't put his money there. And I think that same theory applies with real estate. Don't buy what you're not familiar with.
1: Uh, I'm not sure whether you have done uh, any any work on China, but recently, like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. with all the Evergrande thing going on, a lot of a lot of developers uh, defaulting. Did you still feel that even China is still an investable place for real estate? It's like, is there like? Because I don't know, listen to China, right? There's a lot of like, uh, I would assume like a lot of reg- regulatory barriers to even like. Buy a, buy a second-hand property or maybe a private... Um, I, I don't even know how their structure works. Like Maybe a very expensive private property, you want to buy that? It's also quite difficult. Is, is there, is there is any thoughts afford- on China? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. And, okay, I, I have friends, right, <laughs> in the VSC industry. <laughs> they were enticed to go to China. New developing town, city, right, first mover advantage, a lot of government plans, whatever. Guess what? They all came back and continue to be VSA region. <laughs> okay. So because, like, it didn't work out there, obviously, right? If it worked out, they would remain yeah. there, okay? They even stayed there for like almost a year, the kind of thing, and they came back. So so in terms of this, right, like looking at China, there's also a lot of red tapes when it comes to properties, right? In fact, right now, from what I know is that they're enticing a lot of people to buy properties by lowering in terms of the entry barrier, okay? But to me, that is not a good sign because whatever that is cheap does not always mean value. Right. So, if let's say today they are giving you so many benefits and everything to buy properties, usually it means that something is not right. Right. So, on the contrary, Singapore they give you so much restrictions in <laughs> terms of buying. They're trying to stop you from buying instead. Right. With coding measures yeah. and everything, that is a good thing because that means there's regulation. Right. I always believe that regulation is important for any investment, because if not, right, if you just look at what happened to crypto, right, with uh, Luna and everything. There's no regulation. That's why things like that can happen. So so that is where, to me, investment, I like to play with rules because rules keep it safe, right? So so China, to me, is a no-no because the rules are always, you know, I would say, bending. And it's too big a country, too big an economy. Of course, people can make big money there. I'm not saying that you don't make money there. You can, but it's just that there's a lot of unknown risks and everything, not to mention, of course, potential scams and so on, right? That is something that I would not touch personally.
1: So uh, actually, I'm very curious, like, uh, you know, i I'm like on your next path, like, because, uh, you know, I think the most organic way for a property consultant to further scale right, is to build up a team and then uh, train them and then vice uh, versa and, and, and etc. But from what I understand also, like uh, some of my friends, their parents, right, they are property agents in the past but then I think they're naturally skilled in doing some stuff like uh perhaps some ID contracting work and also maybe some mini scale construction related work. Is that something you consider? Is it a natural thing in the industry actually? Um, like uh, to provide these kind of services?
2: <laughs> okay, because one of the key thing why I say so is that uh for those who don't know, right, ID work, the profit margin is extremely thin, mm-hmm. All right? So the profit margin is not high. And in order to stand out in the business, usually you need to spend a lot of marketing costs, right? But with such low profit margin and then with high upfront costs, it doesn't make sense for any business. Okay. So that's one. Okay. Of course, some people do it because, you know, like like this is something that they feel for maybe. Okay. But for me, I don't think that it is okay for me to invest it as a business because it doesn't make money sense. Very simple reason, right? It doesn't make me enough money to justify for me to build it. Even if it means that it's a one-stop solution for my clients and so on. But I feel that if my business cannot be profitable, that means that in terms of the quality and the value that can add to the client is also minimized, right? You can only add quality and, and more assurance to your clients when you charge more, right? Which is why, like, for example, one of the um, most, um, I would say, expensive ID out there, if you have heard of Vest and Relax, right? Rest and Relax interior, they are one of the most expensive out there. But why? Because they give you lifetime warranty, just to share for example, right? So why are they able to give lifetime warranties because they charge you high? So, so that is something that I feel is for ID and everything, a lot of people are doing it in the opposite direction. They're trying to compete on price, making it cheap and everything that spoils the market to fight for business. I think those are the ones that I feel that in terms of the you know business direction, I don't feel for it. Yeah, so I'd rather, if I want to do any other business, I, I'd rather focus on other businesses that give me the higher returns instead of doing ID. That, that's for me. La. Right. And I think in this industry, most of the agents are not doing things like this on the sideline as well. Yeah. Because for, for ID or this, it's really not, I would say, yep. um, I would say, a wise business decision. High barrier of entry or, 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 so, or so, I would say.
0: Wise. Right. Okay.
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah. Because it's way too, I mean, it becomes yeah. a commodity, you see, because like, like it's just like selling toilet paper, right? So there are so many ID firms out there, which mm-hmm. one is truly really good and everything. And uh, they, most of the people will, focus on price, right? How do I get the, you know, the best venue for the cheapest? Yep. Unless some people have deeper pockets, they're willing to pay, then they will go for more expensive ones. But that's not the majority.
1: So you're instead focusing on uh, maybe expanding your clientele base, uh, your expertise, and also building up a team. Uh, so for the team, right? Do you Circling back to your past, when you you make a switch from uh, one one firm to another, do you like try to, uh, try to build your team and the infrastructure and the, and the learning of the team in such a way that um it is what you think that uh as a new agent uh, if you are starting out now you should be able to, uh learn and get experience of the tools provided etc to, uh maybe succeed in the industry. Do do you, how do you uh, approach training your team and uh, perhaps it's a even very recruitment?
2: Funny thing because right like. Building a team is like like raising children, right? So for those who are not parents yet, it's very difficult to relate. For those who are parents, you know what I mean. Because when you take in people under you, right, you need to be responsible for their growth, right? Of course, end of the day, they make their own decisions, just like parents, right? They can guide us and everything, but end of the day, we make our own decisions. So that is where sometimes I also learn when to let go and when to be protective. Because if you do it wrong, it could be overproductive and that is preventing them from learning what they're supposed to learn, right? So that is something that I learned, you know, like the hard way in the last few years, whereby I do see, of course, I have guys who do well, but I have guys who don't do well also. And that is where I will ask myself, why why is it so that I give the same training to people? Some can do well, some don't. And then I also start to realize, okay, because maybe different people needs different way of approaching them, right? Different ways of talking to them. It's just like parents when you're maybe three or four children and all of them have different personalities. You've got to talk to them differently, right? You cannot use the same manner to talk to all four children. So with my team, it's the same thing. I cannot use the same way to talk to everyone. So it's all about understanding them better and coming up with, I would say, almost like tailor-made um, so-called instructions for them and different approaches, right? So that becomes more tight knitted as well as a team. And which is why I'm also very thankful because my team at the moment, like everyone is very closely knitted together. We can feel like we are a very close family. And that is the kind of culture and spirit that I want to keep up with. But of course, the challenge will be eventually when the team grow bigger and bigger, right? Of course, when now it's easy because my team, you know, right now we got 10 over people. But as we go bigger to maybe 100, 200 and more, it will be harder and harder to actually uh, maintain the culture, right? So the only way I can try to maintain the culture is to be the gatekeeper, but whoever I recruit in, right, I need to do some QC, right, to make sure that this person is a good fit. And that in terms of the mindset-wise, in terms of the energy-wise, we are all aligned, then that will help to reduce any potential friction or politics.
1: So uh, I think we have just one final question we ask all the guests who comes onto the podcast. So who is the CEO um, you actually, are studying um, following or following?
2: This guy not from Singapore, right? He's from uh, Canada, uh, Dan Locke. Okay, so um, I had the opportunity to learn from him personally and that I'm actually um being mentored by him as well. So in terms of like his business direction and the way how we look at like how to approach in terms of your business-wise, Okay, investment wise and also on marketing and so on. Right, he has a very wide range of knowledge. So for those of you who want to learn that, I think you can
0: follow Dan Lock his his really a very Do you pay guy. for his mastermind? Like in a circle? Like how did you get or is it just courses? Um, yes, okay, I okay. Nice. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'm I'm in his circle, okay. yes. How how do how should people find you um on social media? Uh where do they inquire? and what what can they buy? What can they yeah, feel free feel free to um, plug the and stuff? Yeah.
2: Okay, I think uh, just simply follow me on either Instagram or TikTok, right? You can find me at ck.sg c w e k a y .sg, okay, and uh, you can just drop me a PM then. And of course, uh, soon I'll be coming up with my uh, book, and then of course my real estate courses. So I think if you follow me, you will see
0: more information there. Okay, Ken, thank you, CK, so much for your time, and um, talk to you guys soon.
2: Yep.